Amen. Well, good morning. We are glad you're with us. Grab your Bible because we're going to be in that today, as every Sunday. Um, if you need one, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. If you're visiting, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I was blessed a few months ago in that somebody gave us a knife collection. And so this is kind of one of those, it's all greased up and oiled and, and sharp. And we had some folks over at, uh, at Super Bowl and pulled out this box of knives, and a bunch of them were boys, and the girls, too, all went crazy, just all these knives, pulling them out, you know, World War II knives. But what makes a knife valuable, or, or what makes it useful? The blade. There you go. That's the blade, and that it's sharp. Now, I have a tendency to not sharpen knives. If, if you have a, a knife that you use, you need one of these. Uh, it's a whetstone, and, and Grandpa taught me how to you spit on it. You know, I, that's how Grandpa taught. Um, and I remember, you know, when I was growing up, sharpening knives some. That was a fun thing to do and see how sharp you could get it. But my tendency is to not sharpen knives. And then I pick it up to use it, and it's no good. And so I just stick it in the drawer, and it stays. Well, now I have a box full. I don't have to sharpen them ever again. I'll just, you know, use one for a while, and then it's dull. Put it to the side. But have you ever thought about the church and maybe us as believers kind of as a knife? Again, what makes a knife valuable is that it's sharp. It's useful. In fact, when I was growing up, I was taught, you know, keep your knife sharp because a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp knife. If you have a dull knife, you're trying to, you know, you're really trying to use it, it's going to slip, you're going to cut yourself, you're going to do something. But a dull knife is worse, more dangerous than a sharp knife. Now think about believers. Now think about churches. A dull Christian or a dull church might actually be more dangerous than useful. We're going to be in Revelation. We're going to look at this a little bit. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, but we're wrapping up our all-in series. And the whole point of this series has been basically to help us get a picture of what does God want in our lives and, and what would it look like to be sharp, a, a sharp knife as, as a church, but as individuals too. What does God want to do in and through us? And so we have this acronym that we use frequently, all-in, and we looked at the first one, A. We are plan A. Plan A is that I share a better way and there is no plan B. Now, each of these letters kind of covers a topic that God would have in our lives. And so if we're maturing, if we're following God, we want to see these things in our lives. Now, it's not a checklist as in I'm going to check these off and that makes me mature or, or makes God love me more. That gets toward religion. Uh, rather, we have a relationship with God because what Jesus did for us on the cross we fall deeper in love with him. The greatest commandment is what? That we love God. Eternal life is what? That we know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So for eternity, we're going to be in a love relationship. It's what we're made for. But now if we're pursuing him and God is expressing himself through us, here's the things we will see in our lives. So that's what makes this all-in uh, series helpful and this all-in acronym is we can look. And some, if we see a, a gap as we go through, we may realize, okay, maybe I have a heart issue, or maybe this is brand new. Oh, I didn't know that. And now because I'm in love with Jesus, I want to add this in and, and make this part of my life. But that first one is, plan A is we share a better way. Meaning that the main reason people will come to know Jesus is if someone who knows Jesus shares him. There's no salvation under heaven uh, among, you know, there's no salvation in any other name given among men but Jesus, you know. You can't find it in Islam, in Hindu, no other religion, only faith in Jesus Christ. And people will read the Bible and come to faith, but often God will bring a believer into their life as well to help explain it. So that's the first one, A. 
The first L is love God. And again, we're made to love God. You know, and a lot of times we think of love as an emotion, and it is, but it's more than an emotion. It's a, it's a choice. It's a decision. And so for you and me, do we love God? Everything we do, we do for God. Is our relationship with him the lens by which we view parenting, marriage, business, uh, employer, employee, all, all of that? We love God. Again, we're made for that relationship. Or do we just kind of do religion because we're supposed to? Um, the second L Living and learning. You know, we learn out uh, God's, we, we learn God's truth and we live it out together. So this points to the context of community. Um, and we talk a lot about this, uh, that God wants us to do life together and he gives us his word. This is the word of God from beginning to end. Uh, it says it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's useful. And so we learn God's word and then together we figure out how does this apply? How do we work this out? Um, then the I, invest. Because everything we realize, we're good stewards, we want to be good stewards, everything we have is God's. Our talents, they're God's. Our stuff, it's God. our family, it's God's. And so we want to invest our time, talents, and treasure into what God would have us do. That doesn't always mean just church stuff, by the way. You know, we talked about that last week. Sometimes we can get confused and think by placing Jesus first, it means church becomes first in our lives. And we can, we can miss our families in that. I, I've met adults who said, I grew up mad at the church because it took my dad away. You know, because dad thought the church was so important. And the church is important. But we invest in what God would do, meaning beginning in our families and then in the context of church and elsewhere. And then last week, we were very blessed to hear Paul uh, look at the end, not about me. Not about me. And this is one of those things that we also try and talk a lot about because the the enemy has a plan, and his plan is to get into churches, break up our unity, that we could come in and, and get wounded by each other, uh, but that last end is, it's not about me. Are we committed more to what God would do and, and be okay with hurting each other? We're going to hurt each other because we're still people in these bodies. It's going to happen, but if we're committed to God's plan, what he wants to do, then we reconcile. You know, we, we work on keeping those relationships healthy, and so today, I want to kind of wrap it up wrap up this idea of all in, and what does that look like? We're going to be in Revelation 3, because in, in the beginning of Revelation, the book of Revelation, Revelation was written by the Apostle John later in his life. Uh, at this point, he's probably the last disciple uh, still alive. He's an old man. He was one of the closest to Jesus. Uh, he was probably one of the younger disciples when they were still walking with Jesus, and Jesus gives him a vision. So Jesus appears to him, and he, and he gives him a message. That's all the book of Revelation. And some of it is, is apocryphal. You know, some of it is prophecy looking forward. But here we look at seven letters to seven churches. And Jesus says, write these down and give them to the seven churches in Asia. These are very real churches, a message that applied to them. But it's also a really good message. He said, you know, it went all. So all of them read all the letters. But now we have it, too, that we can look at. There's a warning in the one that we're going to look at, a warning for churches, and this church in particular, and then some instruction on where to go, what to do. So we're going to read the, the letter to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3. And I'm going to read verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Basically, it's saying, it's me, Jesus, 
I'm the creator. I'm the one giving this message. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I kind of, I like that last verse, and Jesus would say this elsewhere as he would teach. He who has an ear, let him hear. Basically, pay attention. If you have ears, use them. Listen to what I have to say. And here, again, Jesus is, is sending this message to a church in Laodicea. Now, we can understand this just by reading it. It's fairly straightforward, but if we understand the context of Laodicea, it's actually a little bit more helpful because this is a a real city in a real place, um, and he is addressing their actual condition. So we have a map up here. There we go. There's Laodicea. Laodicea was on uh, the Roman road. The Romans, you know, from Rome, they built a road. All roads lead back to Rome. Maybe you've heard that. One of those main roads led through Laodicea, so it was a center for trading. Uh, It was kind of like a port city. Um, where people would come from all over to trade, to do business. Laodicea was known, and you see that in these verses, for three main industries. Uh, The first was banking. Actually, we see records of of people from Rome going to Laodicea for for banking, and so there's some references here to gold, you know, make yourself rich. So they were a wealthy city. Uh, We know they were wealthy because in AD 60, a great earthquake hit the area. Um, All these cities were affected, and most of them got help from Rome. Rome sent money and help. Laodicea in 8060 said, we don't need your help. We're, you know, we're good enough on our own. And so that was kind of the, the spirit of this city was independent, uh, self, uh, you know, do everything on their own because they were rich. Uh, the second one was they were known for a special kind of wool. Uh, and the clothing that would make from that wool, that was one of the other industries. And so you see some reference here to clothing as well. And then the third was uh, what was called a Phrygian powder. And it was a powder that they developed that they could mix and crush it up, and it was a salve for the eyes. And so they had a medical school in Laodicea uh, during the first century, and they were known for this this salve. You have eye problems, you go and and you get this. And you see that also in these references where Jesus is speaking to them. You think you're rich, you think you're well-clothed, you think you can see. He says, you're poor, you can't see, um, and you're naked. And so he, he's using these physical things to make a spiritual point, kind of like a, a parable. Now, here's the other thing. Maybe as we read through this, you're like, oh, that's where that verse is, lukewarm. Maybe you've heard that before. The, the unique thing about Laodicea is their water was bad. So their water was undrinkable, and they had two sources where they could get it. You see it on the map here. Up above is uh, uh, Heropolis. And there in Heropolis, they, had, they were known for their mineral hot springs. And so they had hot springs up there. It was about 11 miles north. Uh, south was Colossae. They were known for their cold, clean water. 
Um, and there's actually still, if you look it up, you can see there's, there's old piping. They would pipe their water in from Colossae. It would, it would go to Laodicea. It was about six miles. So think about that. Hot water, awesome, useful. Maybe you've been to a mineral hot spring. We, we have some around. Cold water, useful, wonderful. But in Laodicea, their water was coming from either 11 miles or 6 miles. What would happen to water? Hot, coming 11 miles, or cold, coming 6 miles. By the time it got there, it was lukewarm. So again, here's this comparison. Just to help us understand, why would Jesus say it this way to this church? These are some of those things that will help us understand. But let's look at the main point. Verse 15. It says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. What's the topic? What's his main point? Their works. You're lukewarm. Now, maybe you have, have read this or heard this and you thought lukewarm uh, obviously is, is bad, but hot and cold. I was taught this, you know, looking at this passage, that, that cold is bad and hot is good. And so, why, and I always wrestled with that. Well, why would Jesus say, I would rather you be cold than lukewarm? I would ha rather have you no relationship with me. And that's kind of what, what I had been taught and thought that that meant. But that's not actually what it means. What it really means is cold is good. I mean, on, on a hot day, what do you want? Cold water. On a cold morning, what do you want? A hot cup of coffee or tea. You ever have that hot cup of coffee or tea and then you go work outside and you leave it sitting for too long and then you pick it up and it's lukewarm? I want to spit that out. The point is your work. He says your works are lukewarm, meaning useless. Not, I'd rather you hate me or love me. He says, I want you to be useful. So that's really the theme of this whole letter is here's a church that has lost their usefulness to God. They're neither hot, which is useful, or cold, which is useful. They're doing church. They're doing religion. They're doing all these things, and they think they're good. But Jesus says, you're useless to me. You're like lukewarm water, which I want to just spit out of my mouth. And so there's the picture. Lukewarm refers to works that are barren, ineffective, and useless. So back with that knife analogy, this church had lost its edge. It was still called a church, the church in Laodicea, but it, hadn't, it, was, a dull, it was dull. And a dull church, as he's talking about, or a lukewarm is useless, and again, he wants to spit them out of his mouth. Now, before we dig in and, and look further, because there's good news in this too. You know, Jesus is going to go on and give good instruction. But what, what does this look like today? And this is why I wanted to look at this, because I believe this letter to this church is extremely relevant today, especially in our American context. There's many churches that have lost their edge, that, that exist but, but they've lost their edge. They're, they're dull. When, uh, years ago, I was uh, invited to participate in a service at a church, not in this town. Um, and I went to the church, and out in the front was this big, giant banner. And it said, all are welcome. I said, that is awesome. You know, I love that. All are welcome. Yes, we're, we're diverse. Everybody needs the gospel. Wherever you come from, whatever color you are, whatever gender you are, whatever, you know, let's come in and then, you know, the church. And so I walked in. Um, and I, I thought, I'm going to look around and see, okay, all are welcome, meaning you, you come into this place where there's the gospel and then there's life, pointing people to life. In a few hours, a bunch of people were going to be coming that needed the gospel, a lot of non-believers that needed the truth. And so, you know, I was looking for signs of life, um, 
doctrinal statements. What, what do they do to disciple people? I always do that when I go to other churches out of town. Like, what are they doing that I can steal? Um, you, you know what I mean? But, but what are they doing that's useful, that's working to help people find life in Jesus and grow in Jesus? So I'm looking around. I couldn't find anything. Um, I found the pastor, and I said, hey, what do you have? You know, what are you guys about? Do you have a doctrinal statement? He's like, I think there's one in the back of the hymnal. I said, really? <laughs> so I found a hymnal and kind of thumbed through, and there was, there was really nothing of value. And what I discovered from talking to him and looking around was this church had abandoned the gospel. They had abandoned truth because they wanted all to be welcome. So what I saw as awesome, I soon realized was lifeless. Uh, what I thought was great ended up, all are welcome, but we have no life here. And, and a lot of that stemmed from uh, certain changes in our culture of, okay, if you call this sin, you're going to alienate certain people, so we need to be okay with sin. We're not going to call sin, sin. You know, everything's okay. Well, if everything's okay, then we don't need repentance. So you abandon Jesus' first message when he walked around and he said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You lose sin, you lose the need for a savior. So basically, there's no life there. That's a dull church. Uh, that's a church that's lost its edge, but I, I don't think that's the only way it can happen. That's one way, by abandoning God's word to be inclusive, is one way churches become dull. Here's another one that I've seen. Stunted personal sanctification. You say, that sounds weird. <laughs> what I mean is that we are saved by faith in Jesus alone, but then we enter a process by which God wants to make us more and more like Jesus. And so there's sin in our life. When we come to know Jesus, there's still sin in our life. But there's a process by which then the Holy Spirit, uh, through His Word, through His people, convicts us and changes us through His power to make us more like Jesus. Well, a lot of times, churches or Christians, we as individuals, can get to a point where we, we kind of stop growing. You know, we look around, we're like, yeah, we're good. You know, we still have some sin, but, but we're good. You know, I'm, you look in the mirror, you're like, good enough. Um, and so this personal, this stunted sanctification, if it becomes church-wide, then you're not excited about growth anymore. You know, marriages struggle, who cares? You know, parenting is hard, yep, it's hard. You know, and, and no more growth. I think this is one of the big reasons some churches can become, or individuals can become uh, dull. Or here's another one. Sin in the church that you refuse to deal with. This one's really hard. We have an example in 1 Corinthians of a man who is sleeping with his father's wife, so his stepmom, and the church isn't dealing with it. The church just ignores it, and Paul writes to this church saying, hey, you need to deal with this. This is happening, and everybody knows it, but you know, you're, you're hanging out like it's no big deal. No, deal with this. And he goes on to say, you know, deal with it, not just kick him out and be done with them, but help restore, but you need to deal with this. We have an epidemic in the American church across all denominations of sexual sin, an epidemic of kids being hurt. I mean, all these things. And over and over, we hear stories of it just being covered up. You know, cover it up because we don't want people to know that we struggle. That's not the church. And that right now, that's a great way for a church to lose its edge, to become lukewarm, is to cover up this sin and people getting hurt, rather than, as the, church, as the scripture tells us, bring it out, deal with it, and then restore those people responsible. How about this, ignoring the mission? This is another really big one. We as a church can get so inward focused that we forget that we're here for the rest of the world. 
And so we'll say things like, you know, God will just bring us the people he wants us to minister to rather than the Great Commission says, go make disciples. We're to be ambitious about spreading his word. Now, I could go on and on. These are, this is just things I've seen in my life, but there's more. But here you see, what does Jesus say? A church that is useless, and there's many ways we can get that way. And by the way, we here, at the, we're not above this. It's not like we're immune to this. This is why I want to talk about it. We want to avoid this at all costs. And us as individuals, maybe some of us are here or tending to go that direction. We want to avoid it. So what does Jesus say? He says, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That word literally means vomit. I, I want to throw, you make me want to throw up. And, and if you guys don't deal with this, I am going to throw you up. I'm going to be done with you. If these individuals and this church does not change, Jesus will reject them. That's the point. And he'll address this in a little bit. He'll tell them what to do about it. You know, Jesus, because he's loving, he gives them this warning before he moves to judgment. But he's given them a spiritual diagnosis. And what's this spiritual diagnosis? He says, verse 17, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their problem was partly their wealth. This is why I think this letter refers to uh, I mean, it can refer to us as Americans. We are so wealthy. The poorest of us are still wealthy. We, uh, very few people wrestle with what are they going to eat later in that day. We, we typically, even the poorest among us, have three meals a day. You know, maybe rice and beans, but my kids love rice and beans. You know, we are extremely rich, and there's a danger with wealth. There's a danger is because we then feel like we're good. You know, we don't need God because we're good. Some of the, one of the best things sometimes God can do for people is let them hit rock bottom. Take everything away and make them look up. The writer of Proverbs, Proverbs 38 and 9, he says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And that goes on, but he says, you know, don't let me be too rich, too self-dependent, self-reliant. And that's the problem with this Laodicean church. They were good. And as the city, that was kind of their condition, it had moved from the city into the church. Isn't that kind of the way things happen? Look at our American culture and how it has then moved into the church. Rather than us being a light to the world, the culture tends to move in and change the church. We have to be aggressive to avoid that and aggressive to, to remain sharp. So he tells them their condition. He says, you're blind. You know, again, he's making these references to their, their industries. You know, you think you can see, you've got this nice salve, you're actually spiritually blind. You think you're well clothed, but actually you're spiritually naked. The problem is their ignorance to their own condition. You know, this sounds a little bit harsh. And it really is. Jesus' words are harsh. This is one of the letters, you know, most of these letters, there's seven of them, have, hey, you do this, and that's good. You do this, and that's bad. Here's what I'd like you to do. There's two of the churches where it's all good. We want to be like those churches. And then there's two, and this is one of them, where there's nothing good. You know, he's not done with them yet, but nothing good. And the problem is their ignorance. Again, have you seen this in your own life? Sometimes maybe you come to church or you get in group or you start talking and things come out and you're like, oh my goodness, there's, a, there's this thing in my life I didn't even realize was wrong and now, you know, by God's grace, he's revealed it to me and now I can deal with it. There's a lot of, say, churches and people 
They think they're good, but yet they're ignorant to it. And that, that was this church's problem, was their ignorance to their own condition. But here's what's helpful. What's the proof? You know what I, so, it, I mean, if you're asking, well, how do I know? What, what's the context of this whole letter? He says, their works. He says, your, wor- your, your works are useless, which is pointing to their heart problem. They didn't know their own condition, but if they would only look, are we being useful as a church? They would go, oh, no, we're, we're not. There's evidence right there of the problem. You know, this is why we have this all-in acronym and why we use it. It's kind of a spiritual checkup. You know, not to go, here's the things to do, but to go, how am I? Are me and Jesus good? Let me look at some of these things that should be evidence of his life in me. And if I don't see them, by God's grace then, and his power, we, we seek to adjust that. And that's what Jesus is doing with this church, is you think you're good, but you're not. So turn my way. I have a plan for you, but you're not as good as you think you are. So what does he tell him to do? Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, Jesus, I love the way Jesus teaches in context. So, I mean, these people receiving this letter, you know, he really is speaking straight to us. We're rich, we've got great clothes, and we can see. And he says, no, you need to get all that from me. You know, what's that picture? Come to me. He says, I will clothe you. I will make you rich. Now, don't be confused when he says, come and buy from me. You know, that can lead you astray. Isaiah 55, 1. This is God speaking through his prophet. He says, come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's confusing. (laughs) Come by without money. Come by, but it's free. That's the way God works. You know, Jesus is saying, I have everything you need. Come buy it from me, and it will cost you nothing, but it costs me everything. This is the gospel. That Jesus went to the cross. That he died for our sins. That his blood covers all the sin of all mankind from from beginning to end. And all we have to do is basically say thank you. You know, it's as if we're sitting across the table from Jesus, several of us, and Jesus says, here's the gift of eternal life. I have earned it. I have done everything you need. The difference between us and a non-believer is simply we say, thank you. We take it. Others will look at the gift and say, I don't need it. I'm good. And that was the condition of these in Laodicea, possibly. At least some of them were good. We don't need that. So Jesus is saying, come to me, buy. It's not going to cost you anything, but come to me. I'll give you all that you need. What is the clothing? Well, Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed clothed yourself with Christ. The clothing is Jesus himself. Again, so it's not works. It's not a works-based salvation. But here we're saying we come to Jesus. Jesus will clothe us. Then he will live his life in and through us. That's what this looks like. He says, come to me and buy. How do we do that? He says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. What does he want? 
repentance. Repentance. That means we agree with God that he's right. We agree with him that sin is sin, and we turn and go his way. That's repentance. It doesn't mean perfection that follows. We won't be perfect in this life. But it does mean I, I agree with you, God, about the things that you say. I read your scripture, and I agree with you. Now I want you to be Lord. You know, this church here, they were ignorant to their condition. Jesus points it out and says, and here's what you do now. Repent. Humble yourself. Recognize you aren't where you think you are. Be okay with that, and come to me, and I'll give you everything you need. Repent. Again, he said they're lukewarm. He said, I want to vomit you. I want to spit you out. What do they do? If they repent... He won't. The difference between the expelled and the disciplined lies in their response. Repentance, a rekindling of loyalty to Jesus. I think that's really helpful. So when God disciplines us, what, it's because he loves us. What's our response? Hopefully, repentance, to turn to him. He wants this relationship with us. You know, discipline is a sign of God's love. Now, how about this verse right here? It says, repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, I'll come into him and eat with him. What's the context? Who's he speaking to? A church. Jesus is painting the picture of him standing outside his own church knocking, saying, let me in. You know, can a church exist without Jesus in their midst? Absolutely. It's one of the scariest things. You know, and what I would say is a church can last as long as the money continues, right? Maybe, maybe you've seen that before. We can keep going and, and doing religious stuff, and Jesus is outside going, hey, let me in. Now, what about your own life, too? We can go through the motions, and Jesus is saying, I want to be part of your life. Let me in. I'm knocking. That's part of repentance. And what does he say? If we repent, if we open the door, we invite him in, he says, I will come in and eat. That's a picture of intimacy, it's a picture of relationship, eating a meal together. He wants this intimate relationship with us. And then he goes on, and he, and he finishes verse 21 and 22. It says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, the one who makes it through relying, remaining useful, but the conquer is really we're relying on what Jesus conquered. Jesus conquered on the cross. He conquered sin and death. And so we conquer by basically just uniting with him. So what do we do with this? You know, we see these rewards that are coming in the future, heavenly rewards, eternal rewards. But how do we apply this? Why would we finish our all-in series with this? I would say this, ask the question, are you useful to God? Now, my point in this isn't for us to, to, to look in the mirror and go, am I even saved? That's not really the point here. The point is, am I useful to God? Again, this, this all-in acronym, are these part, if not, do I need to repent? Is there a change God wants to make in me and us as a church? Are we sharp? Are we, are we being sharp? Are we useful to God? Again, this isn't works-based salvation, but... The scripture is very clear. After we find life in Jesus, after we repent, turn to him, then he has a plan. He wants to do great things. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So our, our faith isn't a faith by works, but it's a faith that works. And God will do great things. Now one point, you know, I want to kind of point out, you know, what are these works that are useful 
we look toward usefulness. Sometimes we want to look to results. And so we look around and, and, and are we seeing the results we want? Really, use, youthful, usefulness to God is faithfulness. So we're faithful to whatever it is he's asking of us, and then we trust him with the results. We're faithful in our marriage. We're faithful in our parenting. We're faithful at work. We're faithful to follow him and trust him with the results. Rather than you know, trying to, to look at the results you know, and create those, rather usefulness is faithfulness. So here's my question. Are you participating in what God wants to do in your life and through your life, in the church and in the community? Are you participating or are you resisting? Are you sharp or are you dull? You know, one of the aspects of being a Jesus follower, we looked this all in, um, and our theme really has been what does it look like to follow Jesus all in? But here's one of the aspects you see in the New Testament. Being all in with Jesus also means being committed to a fellow group of believers, a family. You know, that's what we would call what we have, we, we want to be a family. And so that's why we have this all in, and we use this all in acronym as our kind of measure for our commitment to one another. We have an all-in covenant. We don't have membership at Common Ground. We have something I would consider deeper than membership. Um, it's like, you know, if you've heard of membership, it's like that, but, but it's being all-in, meaning we're committed to one another, meaning we get permission for those of us who have decided to go in, all-in together. We're giving the others permission to come grab us when we wander. We're giving others permission uh, to hold us accountable, uh, to hold us accountable to all aspects of, of what Scripture would say. And so that's why we're doing this all-in dinner. So you, you got this in your, your really cool new program. Um, you got one of these. This is an invitation. And I would say this. We are called to be committed to a, a body of believers, but we're not the only good one in town. So my encouragement isn't, hey, you need to, to become all-in here because we're the best thing around. No, it would be, if we're not, then let's find where you would be able to go all in and be family. Uh, if you uh, have ever received one of our welcome bags, you found this in it, kind of this blueprint. And the last one on here is family. You know, we're all in partners doing this together. And so our, our dinner, again, you're invited. <laughs> but, but come and just hear, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means what it means to commit, and you may hear and go, hey, I want to be part of that here, or you may hear that and go, you know what, I need to find someplace else to be part of it, and that's great too. Um, you know, we talk about church shopping. This is really looking where God would have you to grow you and to use you, um, but on the back, so you can fill this out. You can also do it electronically somehow. Well, you can. <laughs> um, I thought that was on here, but... Um, Easiest is, since you're here, fill this out, drop it in the box, let us know you're coming so we can have enough food. It's going to be catered by Olive Garden, so it's going to be good food. Um, but again, the point is, is we do this together. You know, we look at all this stuff and it can become overwhelming, but there's a lot of grace in this as we, we want to do life together. And by His grace, we walk this out. And just imagine, what if we had 200 people all in with Christ? What would God do? What would God do in our families, uh, among us, and then through us? And then what if, what if these other churches in town too? And God is, he, he is doing this. I, don't hear me say this going, this isn't happening. It is happening. It's happening here, and it's happening in other bodies in town. But what if it continues to grow? What might God do? I, I, I am excited. Uh, God is on the move, and we get to be part of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you um, for your word. Thank you for this warning that we do see uh, to this one church. Um, God, I believe it is relevant to us. 
I thank you that at the moment, uh, I think we have avoided this pitfall um, in general. But God, we know that we're not immune. And so we just ask you, Holy Spirit, be powerfully present with us. Uh, Jesus, you had to confront this church. Hey, you guys have wandered. Um, I pray that you wouldn't have to do that with us, but that you would correct us and we would listen well to you. Um, as a church and as individuals, we would listen well to you so we don't need to be disciplined harshly. Uh, but I do thank you for your discipline because you love us enough that you won't let us stray too far. You'll bring us back. God, I pray that we would be in tune to you, what you want to do in us, uh, that we wouldn't be okay with sin in our lives. But God, we would seek help with that if needed. If we have addictions, God, we realize we're not in this alone. Others can hold us accountable. Others can help us. God, I do pray for our marriages. God, if we're struggling in our marriages, that we wouldn't just pretend that we're good, but we would seek help uh, from our group leaders, from our other friends, from, from the pastors here, whoever that would be, that we would seek help to grow, to heal, because you want to do great things in us and through us. Now be glorified as we close in worship. As we sing, we have communion up here. We have the bread. We have the, the wine. Uh, come up and, and take it as you, as you do. Uh, but take a minute before you come take it. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Is there anything in your life that God wants to do? Is there any sin you need to confess? And then we come and we take the bread and we, we take the cup with thankfulness. This is for believers remembering what Jesus did. Again, it's not a workspace salvation. We're celebrating what Jesus did. When he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is done. Now we can have peace and joy remembering what he did, looking forward to him coming again.